This is Word for Word, Public Radio's national speech series from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Pencava. The word presumptive is getting a workout this summer in advance of the two major parties' conventions. Until then, Republican John McCain and Democrat Barack Obama are the presumptive presidential nominees. They were also the subject of a roundtable discussion at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and we'll hear that conversation this hour on Word for Word. The Aspen Ideas Festival takes place in Colorado and is organized by the Aspen Institute and The Atlantic Magazine. Thousands of people are drawn to a week-long offering of talks by innovators, journalists, politicians, and academics. The Hotel Jerome Ballroom in Aspen was standing room only for the July 1st roundtable on the presumptive presidential candidates. It featured a half-dozen pundits and commentators from various sides of the political divide and from print, radio, and the Internet. They were David Brooks of The New York Times, Jim Wallace of Sojourners Magazine, Ariana Huffington of The Huffington Post, Stuart Rothenberg of The Rothenberg Political Report, Amy Goodman of Pacifica's Democracy Now!, and Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. Moderating the roundtable was Jonathan Alter, columnist with Newsweek magazine. He began the evening with a question about John McCain for New York Times op-ed columnist David Brooks. You haven't really told us why you think he would be a good president of the United States. Uh, Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here on this panel, which was obviously produced by Cecil B. DeMille. There are are 900 of us. Maybe we should be the audience and you guys should be the panel. First, and the second thing to be said is we don't endorse. I know uh, that. So we, we coyly uh, write so it's obvious who we think should be president without endorsing. Um, my, my views of McCain are essentially this. First, I do think he is a, a great man. Uh, I think he's humble uh, in the ways a politician is capable of being humble. Uh, I, when, when you call politicians and ask them what happened in a committee hearing or a back room, often senators will lie to you flat out. If McCain tells me something happened in a back room, I know it's the truth. And I can put it in the paper with complete confidence that he's told me the truth. That's been tested time and time again. Uh, the third uh, thing to be said is that you can talk with him and you can sit with him hour upon hour. And he uh, can talk about just about anything. And he has, over the past 10 years, proven to me proven to be quite a good legislative craftsman. A lot of the most complicated pieces of legislation he's in the middle of. The final thing to be said about him before I get to some, some drawbacks is that if you go to his office, most senators have their office in the corner of their suites. McCain has his office in the middle of the suite. And the staff is constantly running through, and that's because he is incapable of sitting down. He definitely has the energy uh, to be president. Uh, the, the, the drawbacks are that he is the antibody to organization. And he is a guy who's been flying by the seat of his pants since he was a pilot. Uh, and uh, the White House is not like taking off from the aircraft carrier. It's running the aircraft carrier. And so I think his strengths are his wisdom, his maturity, his personal sense of honor. He's someone I made a joke today, which rubbed people the wrong way, which is that he is a pre-Christian sense of morality. And I said that's because he's older than Christ, actually. Uh, but but it's, a, it's a classical, stoical sense of honor, a pre-Christian morality. And he's driven by that moral sensibility. If he sees something that he thinks is morally disreputable, he will go at that thing. But whether he can actually run a vast organization in a very organized way, that's somebody, even somebody like myself, who admires him greatly, has worries about. Let me just quickly follow up. Uh, you know, he was quoted as saying at one point, I'm computer illiterate. Uh, do you think that matters for a president in the 21st century? <laughs> uh, well, he's in, he's in a funny way. He, one of the things he and Obama share is a, a they're, neither are 60s people. He was away for the 60s. Obama was too young for the 60s. Uh, he is someone who spends his days uh, reading books. You can talk to him about biographies. He loves short stories. He generally loves novels and movies where the hero fights a brave fight and then dies in the end. 
Uh, and I, I try to tell him sometimes, you know, you don't have to lose just to fulfill your for whom the bell tolls fantasy. Uh, but uh, is he in touch with everything about America? Frankly, no. And I think this is a unique feature of this race. I don't think we've ever had two candidates who, are, who have never had what you might call a mainstream American experience. McCain comes from military aristocracy. Obama has a very unique experience, but it's not the typical suburban upbringing experience. And I think in some ways both of them, but in particular McCain, because he is in some ways an archaic figure, uh, they are not uh, in touch with a lot of normal things that people go through. And for McCain, that includes Facebook. David Brooks, op-ed columnist at the New York Times, speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 1st. This is word for word from American public media. Next to talk at the Media Roundtable's look at the presidential candidates was Jim Wallace, editor of Sojourners magazine and founder of the 30-year-old Christian ministry, the Sojourners Community. Moderator Jonathan Alter asked Wallace how Barack Obama's faith would affect an Obama presidency. Jim, uh, you've known Barack Obama for, for a while. Uh, you can tell us uh, how long. Um, how do you think his faith would affect his presidency? His faith? Yeah. Uh, I've known Barack for about 10 years. He was a lowly state senator. And we used to have three kinds of conversations at the beginning. One was about his faith. We were uh, progressive in our faith and the religious right was kind of in, and we were kind of out at that time, so we talked about how it felt to be. We just think, thought that, you know, uh, uh, you know, capital gains tax cuts and the war in Iraq were not the first things Jesus would have done. I don't know, it was kind of a strange idea. Uh, so we talked about that. We talked about how uh, uh, even back then he said left and right are straitjackets preventing us from solving problems. And he wanted to get beyond those categories. Even then he was talking about that. You know, the pundits are saying he's reaching out to white evangelicals, and he is. But that's not just why he did it. I mean, it's because of who he is. He was an organizer in the South Side Chicago, working with churches and faith-based organizations. And he knows the contribution civil society makes to solving issues like poverty and how churches and mosques and synagogues especially, can play a critical role. So I think this is part of who he is. Yet, he gave a, a, a speech, his kind of signature speech was at our conference years ago about how he chastised the left for often uh, wanting to banish religion from public life. And he said that was a mistake, uh, but you have to do it in a way that, that respects pluralism diversity and democracy, how Dr. King did it best with the Bible in one hand, Constitution in the other hand. There's a way to do this well that is respectful of all of our diversity. I think he wants to do it that way. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be a theologian in chief. He wants to be somebody who's, who's shaped by his faith. But the most important thing about a candidate is not their doctrine or denomination. It's their moral compass. You know, what's their moral compass? And for him, his faith helps shape his moral compass but he'd be the first to say that you didn't, don't need to be a religious person to be president of the United States. He would strongly object to that. But it will shape his, his leadership, particularly on issues like uh, social justice and poverty and criminal justice and war and peace. And I think he's, he's kind of Lincoln-esque in this sense. Um, I, I think religion eas- either leads to um, an easy certainty or a deeper reflection. And Lincoln said we should never claim God's on our side. We should worry if we're on God's side. So there's a humility about his sense of religion, which I think is more Lincoln-esque than maybe what we've seen for the last few years. Uh, He resigned from Trinity uh, Church, and he's looking for a new church. Where do you think he'll go? Um... Probably no place before the election. (laughs) Unless that pastor wants all his sermons on YouTube every Sunday. You know, I think he'll probably wait a while. Uh, uh, I I suspect he'll go to a church that really has a strong combination 
of personal faith, which he has, and social justice. And for him, those two are pretty inseparable. But, you know, it, it's a part of his life. It's, uh, he, he wasn't, you know, a lot of people say, oh, he's religious because he's black. All black people are religious. No, he was from an agnostic background. He had a conversion experience. Went down the aisle one Sunday in the south side. And he, uh, but not, the nice thing about Barack, faith doesn't erase doubt, which means he's a human being. He still has doubts about things, and his faith embraces hopes and doubts and all the rest. But he'll find somewhere, he, he will find a church, I'm, I'm sure. And there, there's already applications, I think, being sent to him from <laughs> pastors in Washington, D.C. Jim Wallace of Sojourners Magazine at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 1st. He was one of a half dozen speakers at a media roundtable on the presumptive presidential nominees. Jonathan Alter of Newsweek Magazine was the moderator. His next question was for the Huffington Post founder, Ariana Huffington. Okay, Ariana, you have known John McCain since at least the early 90s, right? Maybe even earlier. And you were very friendly with him. Uh, at least through the 2000 election when uh, he keynoted your counter-convention at the L.A. Democratic Convention that year. Um, How did he change? Uh, Or or did you change in your perception of him? No, I think he really did change. And um, I, I was very saddened by the change because even though there were always things with which I disagreed with McCain. I saw him as a real leader, a real reformer. In 2000, when I organized shadow conventions in Philadelphia, where the Republican Convention was, and in Los Angeles, where the Democratic Convention was, to address issues neither political party was addressing, issues of poverty. Jim and I worked on that together, um, campaign finance reform, and the failed war on drugs. Jim and I were really surprised when John McCain accepted our invitation to keynote the Philadelphia Convention. He called me the day before, and he said, George Bush personally called me and asked me not to do it, but I'm going to do it. And, and that was John McCain. And that was something for which I will always be grateful. And that's why his fall to who he has become now is a Shakespearean fall. It's not a Mitt Romney flip-flopping. It's not a political hack who says one thing one day and another thing another. That is a man who has abandoned every sacred principle in the quest for the presidency, starting with his position on immigration. He now has said he would not be voting for his own bill. He had said that he would not be voting for George Bush's tax cuts because he could not do it in good conscience. This was a politician who talked in terms of conscience, as David said, old-fashioned sense of honor and conscience, and now he wants to make them permanent. This is the man who attacked the religious right as agents of intolerance and went and sought the endorsement of Reverend Hagee. And this is the man, and that for me was in a way the ultimate surrender, who voted against the bill that would have prevented the CIA from using torture. And this is a man who is a war hero, who has tortured himself for five years. So... It's been really incredibly sad to see what happened. And at this very moment, when the right has been so discredited, he is their only hope, because he is, in a way, the Trojan horse of the right. And we Greeks know that Trojan horses are very dangerous things, because... Maybe Maybe he will get in there and revert to the old John McCain if he's elected. Well, you know, I didn't even mention the main problem at the moment with John McCain, which is his position on Iraq. I mean, the way he's thinking of Iraq, his kind of ardor about this war, his delusional assessment of what has happened on the ground again and again. Remember when he went to that market in Baghdad and told us that things were returning to normal, forgetting to mention that he was surrounded by more soldiers than George Washington had at Valley Forge. (laughs) And, And two helicopters overhead, and and that on top of it, when he went back a few months ago, he couldn't even go to that place anymore. So the fact that he's so delusional about Iraq, for me, makes him like the kind of person you should not leave alone with sharp scissors. I don't want to put in the way. I'm going to Huffington at this year's Aspen Ideas Festival. 
We'll return to that. <laughs> Jonathan Alter of Newsweek magazine moderating a roundtable of media commentators talking about the presumptive presidential nominees John McCain and Barack Obama. Next up, Stu Rothenberg, editor and publisher of the Rothenberg Political Report, a nonpartisan newsletter on congressional and gubernatorial campaigns. He's also a columnist for Roll Call, the newspaper of Capitol Hill. Here's Alter's question for Rothenberg. Uh, we're not going to do a lot of horse race stuff tonight, but I did want to ask you uh, about Obama's problem with, uh, I don't know how many of you saw the old John Sayles movie, Brother from Another Planet. Did you see that? And, I, I, and uh, there, is a, there is a problem, correct me if I'm wrong, that Obama has in representing for many Americans the other. Uh, there was just a focus group that the pollster Peter Hart uh, conducted with 12 uh, Pennsylvania voters, and four of them said that uh, Obama wasn't American enough for them to vote for him for president. How big a hurdle is this for Obama? Well, Jonathan, um, I think it is a problem to the extent that there are, are plenty of Americans out there, not necessarily out here, but out there, because uh, most Americans right now are not in Aspen. I know that's hard to imagine. But uh, um, I think they have a hard time relating to him. He's a very different kind of politician. He looks different. He sounds different. Uh, I remember the first time I met Barack Obama. I'm a kind of a handicapper, particularly for House and Senate races. So I meet uh, House and Senate candidates for about an hour as if I worked for Merrill Lynch or UBS, but I'm not a, I'm not a uh, pharmaceutical analyst or an automobile analyst. I'm a politician analyst. So they come for about an hour and we do the whole debrief them. And um, Barack Obama came to see me in October of 2002, 13 months after 9-11, more than two years, two years and one month before he was uh, elected to the Senate. Uh, his fundraiser, Joe McClain, called me up and said, I've got this, we got this candidate, you ought to meet him, he's great, he's interesting, he's smart, his name is Barack Obama. I said, what? Who's it? What's his name? <laughs> this is 13 months after 9-11, Barack Obama. I said, oh, sure, yeah, I'll be happy to meet him, just bring him in. Um, and I still remember that, that first meeting I had. He was smart. He was articulate. He was rather cool. He wasn't... A lot of guys come in and they're slapping you on the back and they're making jokes and they want to be friends. He was kind of distant. And I think some of that is what we still see. Now, that is different than the, oh, he's not an American. That's a kind of strange phenomenon that I can't entirely explain. But I think... There is, this question, there is this difficulty that some people have in relating to him. And maybe if they can't relate to him, they assume other things. Well, why can't I relate to him? It must be really different. Um, and so I think he's going to have to get over this. As for the buzz on the Internet, don't get me started on the Internet, uh, some of this stuff is just uncontrollable. But I don't think that's his fundamental problem. I think if he has a general election uh, problem, and he has a lot of assets... But if he has a general problem, a general action problem, it is more with kind of working class, white voters, older voters, and he just strikes them as kind of different. They can't relate to him. They don't know who he is. Maybe they think he's liberal. He's an African American. I think that's the bigger problem. And and do you think that uh, he needs to go into a general election up by five points in the polls in order to win? I think he needs to go up by a few percentage points in the poll. I don't know whether it's two or three or five, but I think, um, you know, what we say for frontrunners often is, uh, we always say this for incumbents, but often for frontrunners, what you see is what you get. So if he goes in at 48, 46, he's probably in trouble. Now, people may be overstating his support. Um, right now, the huge advantage he has... I mean, we all know this. The huge advantage is he is better able to tap the desire for change. He is the purer change messenger on the basis of party, on the basis of what he looks like and his background, and on the basis of his message. He is just a bet. It's easier for him to deliver that change message. And so I think that is, that's, how he try, that's how he does ride his way if he wins, if he wins. And he has the advantage. That's how he rides it. And kind of being a little different is actually turns out to be part of, his asset, part of, part of an asset. It's a liability, but, it, but it's an important asset. 
Stuart Rothenberg at this year's Aspen Ideas Festival and a conversation among six commentators about Barack Obama and John McCain. You're hearing them on Word for Word from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Pencava. Moderator Jonathan Alter's question for Amy Goodman was succinct. He asked the host and executive producer of the Pacifica Network's Democracy Now! program if Barack Obama was a sellout. Well, I prefer to talk about movements than the candidates because, I mean, as I travel around the country speaking to people, you know, especially in this last week, I I, uh, spent the weekend in Iowa and then Denver. And um, people were saying, well, what about the last week, right? You have uh, the information coming out from Fortune where the whole controversy before where the, one of his advisors had gone into the Canadian embassy said, don't worry about his rhetoric against NAFTA. He'll really be fine with it. But now it turns out he says he really is fine with it. The Supreme Court decisions on overturning uh, the gun law uh, in Washington, uh, Barack Obama being for it, the... Supreme Court saying no to the death penalty for child rapists, uh, him disagreeing with the conservative court. For many, we talked to Eleanor Holmes Norton. She was just completely shocked, saying, I thought he was opposed to the death penalty, let alone giving it to someone who has not killed someone. Um, Then on campaign finance reform, you just sort of look at what's happened in the last week, and people are saying, what does this mean? I said, I think it means that when candidates come through to your area, uh, you don't spend the time shaking their hand, but shake the system, make a demand. Uh, This isn't about these politicians. They are responding to pressures we see and a lot of forces that we don't see. But it's up to constituencies to determine what they will represent. That's what McCain and Obama are really about. And if they don't feel the pressure from other sides, they will respond. They will change every which way based on where they think uh, people want them to be. That's what I think. And I think that um, this campaign is all about people being heard at the grassroots. There is a huge, rare opportunity right now Um, where, first of all, I think people across the political spectrum actually are united. People who are opposed to war, people who are opposed to torture, are not a fringe minority, not a silent majority. They're the silenced majority, silenced by the corporate media. But they're united. Conservative Republicans, progressives, Democrats, independents, Greens, People care about corporate control, they care about issues of privacy, and first and foremost, they care about war. Um, Barack Obama changes each week. Uh, McCain changes. Um, What is going to hold their feet to the fire is all of you, and not sitting back and being spectators. That is what's happening with these vast campaign rallies now. Um, They do respond in this few moments, in these few months, And they respond to people who are organized and who carry a lot of weight by who you represent. It's an extremely rare moment, and I think we have to stop focusing on these individuals, and especially the corporate media, have to turn the mics around to not only all of you in this room in Aspen, but all over, because people are much more radical and angry across the political spectrum than these candidates represent. Yeah, um, is, since we are focused on the candidates, uh, it, are any of these recent uh, trimmings, as they used to be called in American politics, by Obama deal breakers with the left, either the immunity provisions for the telcos, uh, campaign finance reform, uh, flip-flop, do any of them cut deeply enough, do you, do you think, with this silenced majority to actually significantly dampen the enthusiasm for Obama? I think Barack Obama has to be very careful about what happened to John Kerry. And that is, Kerry made a calculation, which Obama is clearly making, and that is people who would probably vote for him have absolutely nowhere else to go. And, of course, he'll just keep appealing to other groups of people that he thinks would less likely vote for him but possibly could if he changes his positions. They do have somewhere else to go, and that is stay home. And that's what happened. Now, there's a lot of discussion right now about people really being galvanized, and that's very important. Um, But 
depending on where he decides to go, that is the huge difference uh, will be for Obama, is whether he maintains the momentum. And if in each of these cases uh, he turns around, there is a limit to what will excite people. But again, I don't really think it's about Obama and McCain. I think this has to be an issues-focused election, uh, first and foremost, issues of war, an issue of torture, and of course, issues of race and poverty here at home. Um, and that people have to, instead of continually saying, what does he think, what does he feel, what do you really believe he feels in his heart, make demands. That's what they feel in their heart. Uh, they are feeling what you want in large enough numbers. Amy Goodman, host of the Pacifica Network's Democracy Now! at this year's Aspen Ideas Festival. This is Word for Word from American Public Media. And this hour, we're hearing a roundtable among a half-dozen print, radio, television, and web-based journalists and commentators. The sixth and last voice is that of Jonathan Capehart, editorial writer for The Washington Post. Here's moderator Jonathan Alter with his question for Capehart. Jonathan, um, you wrote a uh, widely noticed column recently saying that Sam Nunn should absolutely not be Obama's uh, running mate because uh, of his position on gays in the military, I guess, 15 years ago now, 16 years ago. Um, At what point um, can somebody amend their position and pass muster on that issue, or should we hold him accountable and uh, disqualify him uh, on these grounds? Well, let's make uh, one thing clear. The uh, headline on the op-ed piece said, don't ask none. But nowhere in the piece did I say that none absolutely should not be chosen. The the column said, when Senator Obama is looking for a number two, he should, there's one person he should look at with extreme caution, that being Sam Nunn. Um, So I can understand why uh, you would make that mistake and why Stu would, Stuart would make that mistake uh, in the column that he wrote. Um, but, you know, I recognize fully why Sam Nunn's name keeps popping up every four years um, for the VP shortlist. Um, he is, in the Democratic Party's ideal, he's an ideal number two. He is uh, a moderate. He is uh, an expert on foreign policy. Um, his foreign policy credentials and armed services credentials are, um, are unparalleled. I know that's hyperbolic, but you get what I mean. But I think for, for gays and lesbians, his fight against, um, against allowing gays in the military was such a significant event that many of them, and I have heard from them, which prompted me to write the column, were saying to me, If Obama chooses this guy, I will either stay home or many of them are saying that they'll vote for McCain. And that's the problem, and that's why I wrote this column, that Senator Obama already has a problem with blue-collar white voters, who he's going to need to win. He has a problem with Hispanic voters. Um, And the last thing he, he needs to have is another piece of the Democratic Party voting bloc being angry with him and staying home, or I think probably more likely than not, voting for McCain. And the other reason why, it's not so much that um, Senator, um, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Senator Nunn opposed allowing gays in the military. I mean, that's a policy decision, it's a policy issue, and I'm all for vigorous debate. Where gays and lesbians had a major problem with what Sam Nunn did was when he did that infamous tour of the, su- the submarine barracks. And that was meant, as I wrote in the piece, meant to raise the ick factor about homosexuals. And for a lot of gays and lesbians, that was an image and that was a tactic that was too difficult to take then and is certainly difficult to take now. Could you explain what he did? Uh, uh, could, you, could you explain the submarines? Well, yeah. think about it. A submarine, close quarters close sleeping quarters, and so you're trying to highlight, I guess for the general public back in 93, 94, the, the, what it might be like for your son 
to be in close quarters with someone who may or may not be gay. Never mind that you know, gays and lesbians in the military are serving their country. They are obviously disciplined, and they're trying to serve with honor. And why they aren't able to serve in the military openly, as they do in Israel and Great Britain and Australia, is beyond me. And I think that's something that um, gays across America are also they're scratching their heads. What is the problem here? Table on the presumptive presidential nominees Barack Obama and John McCain. We just heard Jonathan Capehart, editorial writer with the Washington Post, and moderator Jonathan Alter of Newsweek magazine. The roundtable also featured David Brooks, Jim Wallace, Ariana Huffington, Amy Goodman, and Stu Rothenberg. It took place July 1st at the Aspen Ideas Festival. This is Word for Word from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Penn Cava. A moment ago, we heard the conversation center on former Senator Sam Nunn and his past opposition to gays in the military, as well as the possibility of him being picked as Barack Obama's vice presidential candidate. Moderator Jonathan Alter asked Stuart Rothenberg to weigh in. Stuart, I wanted to ask you, would it necessarily uh, be a detriment to the ticket, or is it possible that some of those more conservative voters might actually like Obama a little bit more um, for, uh, for picking somebody uh, who was uh, seen as being uh, tough on the issue of gays in the military. Well, I should say first that the, uh, my column that uh, Jonathan uh, referenced, which responded to his column, uh, was a more general response about uh, now we had entered a period where um, uh, various constituencies we're now going to try to shoot down a variety of names. So I, I didn't just refer to um, Sam Nunn and the, and the gay community. I also referred to Chuck Hagel and the pro-Israel community, and I referred to um, uh, the pro-life community and Tom Ridge on the Republican side. So, you know, I think we have entered this period now that's all this buzz. We don't have anything to talk about for vice presidents, and Chris Matthews has to uh, somehow keep his show going. And... <laughs> And so, you know, but, but, but I, let me just respond. I, the, the difference I have with uh, um, Amy and Jonathan, and I'm sure Ariana on this one, although she hasn't yet chimed in, somehow I think we can expect that to happen, um, is that I think this election will be won in Ohio, Nevada, Virginia, Colorado, maybe Florida, not the entire country. Um, you people from New York and New Jersey are very nice people, but you just don't matter in the presidential race. And so I think, you know, as a handicapper, I do the, try to do this very cold-bloodedly. It comes down to certain states in the Electoral College. Now, look, if it turns out to be a 58-42 presidential race, it could be. If you, go back to, if you go back to 1980, the race was very close until the end. It blew open. It's possible that it's going to blow open, and if it blows open, the odds are it's not going to blow open for John McCain. If it blows open, the chances are it's going to blow open for... For Obama, but if it's close, uh, I think the election is going to determine on these kinds of states: swing voters, suburban voters, uh, white working-class voters. Michigan, I throw in, in, in terms of uh, uh, McCain's chances. So I, I think, well, I understand, Amy, that you want to, you think the country should go in a certain direction. Uh, um, I don't do, and, I, and at least my role is not to say which way the country should go. It's just to say what determines which way the country goes. And I think a, uh, most Americans, frankly, are not very ideological. Now, some of you are ideological. This panel is more ideological than the country at large. The country is not against George Bush because he's too conservative. Country's against George Bush because he screwed up on the war. The economy is in bad shape. The administration responded poorly uh, after Hurricane Katrina. 
ideological people may say that's an ideological reaction on his part. That's his problem, that it's ideological. Uh, some of us would say, no, it's he just, he's not very good at what he does. Um, so I, I, that's, why, that's why I tend to think a more uh, kind of centrist, I mean, I think Obama's successful because he's, he's largely giving a message of change. And that's a pretty good message, change. People want change. His problem is when he gets details. And if he gives the details you want, I think he risks, I think he risks uh, his standing in the race. Ariana? If I may chime in. <laughs> I, I actually just wrote a blog post where I pretended that I was a cold-blooded, calculating campaign manager for the Obama campaign who couldn't care less what his policies were, where the country was going, and simply was giving him advice based on absolutely nothing except winning. That's why I said what I did. <laughs> you were going to chime in on it. Yeah. So, and I could not more fully disagree with Stu's analysis. I think that if purely on those grounds, forgetting at the moment what Amy and I believe in and what we want, where we want the country to go to, just purely Obama or McCain in the White House. What he's been doing in the last two weeks has been undercutting his brand in such a fundamental way that it's opening um, a huge vacuum where McCain can really fill because the public, the majority of the public, still sees McCain as the maverick independent that I loved in 2000 and the media fell in love in 2000. And they haven't really been um, up to date on what has happened to John McCain, which is why you have the 28-48% disconnect. 28% approve of George Bush, about 48%, sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, want to vote for John McCain. So that disconnect is really very troubling for, for Obama. And remember, his candidacy, as he keeps saying again and again, is an unlikely candidacy. And he is the Democratic nominee precisely because the country is longing for change, and because Mark Pence so completely mismanaged the Hillary Clinton campaign. Because Mark Pence ran exactly the kind of campaign that Stu is now advising Obama to run. Appeal to the swing voters, take care of those constituencies here and those constituencies there. Mark Pence wrote a book called Microtrends versus Megatrends. He's the master of microtrends. This election is about a megatrend. And I actually believe either, either Obama will win in a landslide or McCain will win. Because that's what's going to happen now. We're going to see such massive fear-mongering about the Obama candidacy. What Jonathan said yesterday, watched yesterday, you know, the, the four Americans who do not think he's American enough. You see, the swing voters are the most fickle of voters. In 2004, 46% of swing voters actually believed the swift boating of John Kerry. They actually believed that John Kerry uh, inflicted wounds on himself in order to get the Purple Heart. So the, you, can, the, you can make the swing voters believe anything. And if, and if, Obama, if Obama wants to go in, into the election in November counting on the swing voters, he'd better think again. He needs to count on the unlikely voters. 83 million Americans did not vote in 2004. Obama has had an unprecedented success at registering new voters, getting young people out to vote. Why not run a different kind of election, a different kind of campaign? Most candidates cannot do that, but he can. And if he doesn't, he's not going to win. Ariana Huffington, one-time conservative and now publisher of the liberal website, The Huffington Post. She took part in a media roundtable at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 1st. This is word for word from American public media. Ariana Huffington has complained of Barack Obama moving away from the left as the general election nears. One issue she cited was his vote on granting immunity to phone companies who wiretapped American citizens. Moderator Jonathan Alter. Is, is saying that the telephone companies should get immunity somehow betraying a bond to those uh, No, you see, you're, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that he said something completely different before, and he's going back on it without explaining what has changed. I'm all in favor of people changing their minds. God knows I did. <laughs> but I... At least twice. But, you know, no, only no, once. He, he I changed did. my mind once, but I gave a full explanation as to why 12 years ago I changed my mind. So if he wanted to change his mind on the telecom immunity... He, he explained why he said that he needed... No, to he be said the conditions have changed. 
Be, what yeah, because of what happened, what happened last August, where, uh, you know, even though it, it expired, basically we were operating in an unconstitutional environment where the Fourth Amendment had been suspended. So he believed that restoring the FISA court was the priority and that you might have to swallow some, uh, uh, you know, provisions of that bill that he wouldn't have liked in order to restore the FISA court. He wasn't saying, oh, I believe the telephone company should get immunity. He was saying he could accept the immunity as the price for getting a larger bill. Now, why is that but Jonathan, an insufficient if you go explanation? But, John, if you go back to what he had said when he stood with Senators Feingold and Dodd and said we need the grassroots to stand up against telecom immunity and compare it to his equivocating, nuanced, constitutional position which reminded you of John Kerry's I voted for it before I voted against it, that's not a winning strategy. And if you then go on to his interview with Fortune magazine, which in a way for me was the most troubling thing of all, when, when Nina Easton asked him during this interview, um, you said that NAFTA was devastating. And he replied, well, during the campaign, your rhetoric gets overheated at times and amplified. Well, maybe he should just give us a sign when his rhetoric is overheated <laughs> so we don't actually take him at his word. I mean, that is such a huge opening for McCain, and he's been using it. He said, you can't trust him. He changes his mind. He's just another Paul. He's just another hack politician. Barack Obama cannot win as a hack politician. You know, it's over. Either he's going to win as an inspirational, galvanizing force who will bring people around to demand fundamental change, or he's going to follow the Mark Penn, Tom Daschle strategy. Tom Daschle is very influential in the Obama campaign. And go back to the 2002 Tom Daschle strategy. To, he remembers too. He co-authored the defense authorization, um, the war authorization with George Bush. He urged his party to just not make, take a stand on the war because he said we'll just vote with the president, and then we'll go on and, and win the election in 2002 on the economy. Yeah. And they lost. This is Word for Word from American Public Media. We're hearing six commentators at the Aspen Ideas Festival talk about the presumptive presidential nominees. Moderator Jonathan Alter of Newsweek magazine puts a question to New York Times columnist David Brooks. David, I, I want to ask you uh, on this uh, pandering, flip-flopping question. Why is it that um, McCain doesn't seem to pay as much of a price? Look at something like the gas tax holiday, uh, on which I was not the only one who flayed Hillary Clinton for um, this outrageous pander that they couldn't find a single economist, even ones who worked for her campaign, who thought it was a good idea. And John McCain has the same position and hasn't paid the slightest price for it in terms of his, uh, you know, maverick image. Why yeah, not? I guess I disagree. I think he has paid a price. I think, I think if you, well, speaking for myself, I've wrote very positively about both candidates, and I've been disappointed and disillusioned in the campaigns they've run, which I don't think is worthy of the people they are. And that's in both cases. Neither has really bucked the system in the way I think it is in their nature to buck the system. And to me, the question is, can each of them, if elected, 
actually turn the page in American politics and create a new style of politics. And for Obama, it's a very much an open question, as it is for McCain. Obama, I've, I've too, have been disappointed in the, what he's done in the last few weeks. I think it, he could have gone out on the road with McCain with these town hall meetings. I think that would have been great. I think it would have detracted from a lot of the soundbite politics. Uh, I don't blame him totally for flip-flopping on campaign finance, but I think it did destroy the maverick new politics style. But the problem with Obama is that he's not very legislatively skilled. He is, to be frank, and I'm someone who's a great admirer of him personally, he is, to be frank, a mediocre senator. Uh, in, if you talk to Republicans who admired Hillary Clinton for her senatorial skills uh, about Obama, they think he just doesn't have the skills. He's never done it. They would tell you stories, and Democrats would tell you stories, of immigration reform uh, when McCain and, and Kennedy were getting together, really hammering out an incredibly complicated piece of legislation. Obama parachuted in at certain moments, tried to reopen issues that had already been settled, and then showed up for the, for the press conferences. And so, but I point that out because you wonder, is he politically savvy enough to actually change politics? And so as he, the, the one silver lining I would give to this recent ten, trend toward pure politics is that maybe he is politically savvy enough, although I am disappointed in it. Now, in the case of McCain, again, it's a question of teamwork. Politics is a team sport. And can McCain actually create a bipartisan team, which I think he would want to do? On the virtue side, every Tuesday the Senate has a meeting, Senate policy lunches. And the, polls, the Senate leaders set up in front, and they give the senators, especially on the Republican side, the message of the week. And then they bring in some schlep pollster to tell them why the message of the week is a great message. And McCain will sit in the back of the room, he'll take the message of the week, he'll turn into a paper airplane and throw it up in the air and says, you know, another great winner you've got for us this week. He's sort of the class clown. And I admire that in that he is actually thinking. But can someone who is, who is a, an individualist can he create the sort of bipartisan coalition that would actually break the partisan gridlock? And, and does he have the temperament to do that? That's what, you know, they, they describe Franklin Roosevelt as having second-class intellect, first-class temperament. And there have been some questions about McCain's uh, temperament. If he rages at members of Congress as president the way he has as their colleague, he could have a problem getting his program through. No, I, I often don't think that's the key issue. I think for both of them... Passing legislation, actually getting stuff done, is really, really hard. Lyndon Johnson knew how to do it. Dick Darman uh, actually knew how to do it. I think both these men, who are tremendous men, uh, have, have uh, weaknesses in this regard. For McCain, as I mentioned, it's the disorganization. And frankly, the lack of emotional affect and emotional intensity when it comes to domestic policy. For Obama, it is caution. He is a cautious person. He is an, essentially an establishmentarian person, Tom Daschle. And breaking out of the mold will require a lot of incautious behavior. New York Times columnist David Brooks at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Moderator Jonathan Alter turned next to Jim Wallace, author of God's Politics, Why the Right Gets It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It. Could he end up, could Barack Obama end up under-delivering on the level of change that he has promised and well, deliver incremental change when the nation wants more fundamental change? I think uh, none of us believe that the, the election will be settled by uh, the view of swing voters in Ohio on the FISA court. I doubt if that's going to be the decisive factor. The most important poll, consistent over a lot of years now, is people's fundamental dissatisfaction with the direction... America's going in. It's up to 80% now. It's been about 70% now for decades. It's a long time. Now, most people in America outside country think, really think politics is broken in America. Most people believe that. I don't think it's, I don't think what Amy's saying, it's free, not ideological. I think change did win this election. The Republicans, I think, kind of stumbled on to their best candidate because John McCain is the only one in that group who I think could be a change candidate. He has it. He's shown it's in him in the past. You know, David's early columns on Obama talked about how this is a guy who listens to people on both sides of the aisle, which he does. I mean, the Harvard Law School Review, when he was head of that, he didn't win because, he didn't win because all the white liberals wanted to show they were liberal by voting for a black guy. He won because the conservatives thought he'd listen to them, which he did. 
So Obama, uh, if you will, could under-deliver in the way people are talking about if in the end he's not perceived as a change candidate. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. never endorsed a candidate, and he always wanted them to endorse the agenda of his movement. I don't endorse for the same reasons. We're trying to get them to endorse a movement for change. And the formula for change, Amy's right, it's never... <laughs> Lyndon Johnson wasn't a civil rights leader until Martin King and Rosa Parks made him one. The formula for change is movements pushing on open doors. That's the formula. I think, you know, Barack Obama's appeal is not that he'll lead this from Washington, because he won't. Uh, as much as I think change is in his DNA, I know him well, I think he does want to change things. But whoever our favorite is this year, they won't be able to change the big things in this country unless and until there are citizen movements pressing and pushing from the outside. And it's not just ideology, it's about the need for fundamental change. And I think Barack, if he loses his image of a change agent here, I think he could lose that energy and, and momentum, and then I think it could be a very close race, dangerous for him. Jim Wallace, editor of Sojourners magazine, one of six commentators who took part in a roundtable about the presumptive presidential nominees at the Aspen Ideas Festival. The others who took part in the conversation on July 1st were David Brooks, op-ed columnist with the New York Times, Ariana Huffington, publisher of The Huffington Post, Stu Rothenberg of the Rothenberg Political Report newsletter, Amy Goodman, host of the Pacifica Network's Democracy Now! program, and Jonathan Capehart, editorial writer for The Washington Post. The moderator was Jonathan Alter of Newsweek magazine. If you'd like to hear all or part of this roundtable again, you may do so by visiting our website. It's wordforword.org. There, you can hear this week's show, subscribe to our free weekly podcast, and take part in an online discussion about the ideas in this hour's program, as well as those from previous programs. You may also search the Word for Word archives and hear speakers such as the End of Food author Paul Roberts, CNN correspondent Christian Amanpour, and Fareed Zakaria on the post-American world. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Word for Word for American Public Media. I'm Melinda Pencava. Word for Word is produced by Larissa Anderson and associate producer Patty Ray Rudolph with help from Suzanne Pico. The technical director is Sam Keenan. American Public Media.